This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Our vision here at Alliance Bible Church is simple. Captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone was to ask me what this church is about, I could give them, I could give them it in one word. That's gospel. Jesus lived the perfect life we should have lived but failed to. And he died in our place the death that we deserved. So that by faith in him, we can be adopted as his sons and daughters. The message of the gospel is powerful. It does all the heavy lifting. This message that on the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. So that by faith alone, we can get what he deserved. Is a captivating message all on its own. And our job is simply to shout it from the rooftops. Now, the scriptures are clear as to what happens when we do that. People from every generation will crowd around it. They'll come. We are a multi-generational church, not because we've made it our goal to be a multi-generational church. We're a multi-generational church because the gospel is a multi-generational message. It never wears out. It never grows old. It never becomes irrelevant. That's what we're about. Now, our five values are practices every one of us need to embody repetitiously if we're going to see our vision come to fruition. First, we need to be people of the book. If someone cuts us, we bleed Bible line. Why? Because the word of God mediates the presence of God. When we read the scriptures, we encounter God himself. We need to be gospel people. The gospel is effective. It is not an idea, philosophy, or worldview. Get that through your heads. The gospel is not an idea, a philosophy, or a worldview. It's a power. New Testament writers often use the term seed to describe it. It contains in itself the ability to produce life where there is none. We need to be a gospel community people. The church is not a building. It's a people. Jesus-obsessed people constitute the church. And together, we form an alternative society wherein people are given a taste of heaven. And we need to be praying people. Prayer is not a prelude to the main event. Some people think of prayer that way. Simon Warrington Baird said, prayer is that apparently useless activity without which all activities are useless. Prayer gets things done. Today we're going to bring this series on our vision and values to an end as we consider the value of outward engagement. The church is commissioned to expand. In the first couple of centuries following the death and resurrection of Jesus, people became Christians in such large numbers that it was an extraordinary thing to behold. 
So today we're going to briefly consider how people come to believe the message. A core part of our existence that Jesus tasked us with is to expand. Jesus is pro-church growth. In Matthew 28, Jesus makes it very clear that he wants more of something. What does he want more of? Disciples. He wants more. More disciples. But not everyone becomes a Christian in exactly the same way. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Acts 16. I want you to have that open for reference. Acts 16. And while you're turning there, let me draw your attention to something. Next, next Sunday, we are starting a new series on the book of 1 Peter called Alien. I think it's a timely message, a timely word for us. What Peter has to say to Christians living within the Roman Empire in what is modern-day Turkey is a timely message for us today. So we're going to be starting a series on that next week. What we've done is create a companion devotional to this series that you can pick up as you leave today. They're right outside on a couple of tables in the lobby. It's a companion devotional. It, um, it intertwines the five values that we've been talking about the last few weeks with each passage we're preaching on from Sunday to Sunday. It'll be great preparation for you to do the one that we're preaching on ahead of that. So as you come here, you're, you're ready. The soil's been tilled up. So make sure you grab one on the way out. Companion devotional alien to our series on on First Peter. Now, the book of Acts contains numerous case studies documenting conversion and, and spiritual transformation. Okay. This passage, Acts 16, 13 through 34, contains three case studies. Three case studies. One after another, in order to show us the diversity of ways in which people became devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk through each of these three. The first case study we're given is a gal by the name of Lydia. Lydia, we're told, is a dealer in purple cloth, which in our modern day world, we might just kind of breeze through. But first century world, this purple cloth was very rare and expensive. She was also from Thyatira, but doing business in Philippi. And a little later, we'll discover that she began hosting a church in Philippi. So she likely owned two homes, one in Thyatira, one in Philippi, which would also have been very rare in the first century. So the first thing to notice about Lydia is that she is a wealthy businesswoman. What else do we learn about her? Well, we're told that she's religious. There likely was no synagogue in Philippi, and so Paul, Silas, and Luke, maybe others, went to the place where they presumed was a place of prayer along the river. Lydia is there described, being present, as a worshiper of God. So she's a Gentile, she's not Jewish, but she's pursuing the God of the Old Testament. She's reading her Hebrew Bible. She's a religious, wealthy businesswoman. How was she converted? Well, Luke gives it to us in very few words. He says, we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That's it. That's it. It's a quiet, rational 
conversation. And in this conversation, since Lydia is familiar with the Old Testament, Paul is likely explaining to her the gospel from it. How might he have done that? Well, let's take the story of Noah in the Old Testament. Noah and the flood. What precipitates the flood? Well, we're told that God looked upon the world and saw that it was full of evil and wickedness. And this was going to be his judgment of sin. Judgment of sin. But we're also told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was righteous. He was blameless. He walked faithfully with God. So God comes to Noah and says, you're going to build a big boat. And once you're done, you and your whole family will go inside. Because Noah, I have found you righteous in this generation. Now, God explicitly says that he has found Noah righteous. Noah's family is the beneficiary of his righteousness. They get to board the boat because of Noah's righteousness. Noah's righteousness is the one that shields them from God's judgment. Jesus in Luke 24 and John 5 said, look, the Old Testament, all that, that's about me. It's all about me. So how does this speak about Jesus? Well, it certainly prefigures a judgment yet to come. There is in our future a judgment to come. It's not going to come in the form of a flood. It's going to come in the form of a climactic, final, decisive judgment that will last into eternity. Jesus is the true and better Noah. Just like Noah's righteousness shielded his family from God's judgment, Jesus' righteousness will shield his family from God's judgment yet to come. And so the question is, are you part of his family? Are you on the boat? This is one way Paul could have talked about the gospel with Lydia. What's another way he could have done it? Well, how about David and Goliath? David and Goliath. You know the story. You've got this nine-foot warrior. Comes out day after day. Taunts the people of Israel. There isn't anybody found in all the Israelite army who's willing to come out and deal with that. They're all scared. And so David, the shepherd boy, the young shepherd boy, decides, you know what? I'm going to go out and defend the honor of God from this tyrant. It's at this point that most of us say, yeah, I'm David. Bring it on. No, you're not. Neither am I. The text doesn't encourage us to identify ourselves with David. It encourages us to identify ourselves with Israel. We're the ones cowering in the corner. We're the ones cowering in the corner. The lesson is not, hey, just have enough courage and you will slay your giant. Okay, you've not lived life long enough if you think that's how it works. Go ahead. Go ahead. See what happens. Hey, John the Baptist was a great example of a guy who had tremendous courage. What happened to him? Beheaded. Hmm? This is not about you. What happens with this story, with David and Goliath? What happens? You know, Goliath is calling, send your best warrior out there. Send your best warrior out there. David goes out there. And, And the language is, if David wins, Israel wins. If David loses, Israel loses. 
This was a thing in the ancient world. It's representational fighting. Representational fighting. David has become Israel to the Philistines. Representational fighting. He is fighting as Israel. The whole thing. It's substitutional victory. It's substitutional victory. So if David wins, the entire lot is treated as victors. If David loses, the entire lot is treated as losers. You know how the story goes. David wins as Israel. He wins for them. This prefigures the gospel. You don't win your own salvation. You don't win your own spiritual victory. Jesus does that for you. He is our representational fighter. We identify with him by faith. This is what baptism was about. Everything that has happened, transpired with Jesus has transpired already for the believer. Death, burial, resurrection, new life. This might have been some of the ways in which Paul was describing to Lydia the gospel from the Old Testament. So he gets done with all this, and what happens? Well, Acts 16, verse 14 gives us the crux of the matter. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There you go. So Lydia is religious, but she's still missing something. Did you catch that? She's religious, but she's still missing something. She was a worshiper of the Lord, but she was still missing something. The gospel. See, the gospel is for religious people. The gospel is for religious people. Religious people need the gospel. And when Paul gives it to her, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention and respond. A response of faith is ultimately the work of the Lord. This wealthy, religious businesswoman becomes a Christ follower. That's the first character. Second case study is this slave girl. Now, this slave girl is on sort of the opposite side of the spectrum. Unlike Lydia, she's financially destitute. Unlike Lydia, she possesses no independence. She's exploited. Lydia was moral and religious. The slave girl is demon-possessed, filled with spiritual turmoil, if, if Lydia is the religious, wealthy businesswoman, the slave girl is the teenage, drug-addicted prostitute. Now, our English Bible simply says that she had a spirit, but in the original, there's more detail included. She had a pythonic spirit. She was a pythoness, a person inspired by Apollo, the Greek deity associated with giving oracles. So she's neck deep in idolatry, neck deep in it. And her involuntary utterances were regarded as the voice of the god Apollo, and because of this, she was in high demand. People sought her out to have their fortunes told or to receive information or advice from her. And her owners made a great deal of money off her. Now, day by day, the missionaries went to the place of prayer. And she followed them through the streets of Philippi, advertising them aloud as servants of the Most High God. Well, Paul and Silas and the gang didn't appreciate the unsolicited endorsements from her. After days of this, we're told, Paul grew increasingly disturbed. And in a very brief verbal confrontation, he speaks and she's freed from her spiritual bondage. 
Now, there are three aspects to this story I find absolutely fascinating. The first is the slave girl is not Paul's primary evangelistic target. She's not the primary one. Paul, Silas, Luke, and whomever else was part of the missionary team would go to the place of prayer by the river, day by day, right where they met Lydia. Those people, those people hanging out the place of prayer were, were the missionary's primary evangelistic target. Now, when the slave girl trails them from behind shouting her mantra about them on day one, there's no evidence the team engaged her. Neither on the second day. The text makes it seem as though the only reason Paul engaged with her on day five or day six or whatever it was, that he had grown so disturbed by it, he couldn't ignore her anymore. (laughs) Read this from a God-centric angle. God kept this girl around Paul's sphere. He kept her around Paul's sphere until he could ignore it no longer and engaged. And the result was her spiritual freedom. Now, does that mean we don't immediately engage with the gospel, the teenage drug addict prostitute? No, not necessarily. I do think it does bring us some reassurance that if there is somebody who is far from Christ, who needs Jesus, the Lord is going to keep that person in orbit around a gospel-proclaiming individual or community. So the question for you is, (laughs) what soul is the Lord keeping close to my sphere of influence? What lost soul is the Lord keeping close to my sphere of influence? Second observation to notice is which problem Paul chooses to address first. Remember, she's got two problems. She's got a spiritual problem. The other problem is social and economic. She's in spiritual turmoil and she's exploited as a slave. The way in which Paul engages this gives us the granules that establish a pattern throughout the New Testament as to how this was thought about and addressed in the first century church. Paul does not tackle the social and economic, at least not directly. He tackles the spiritual directly. Now, this has brought up observations over the centuries of the New Testament's overall silence on what we might call in the West, in the 21st century, systemic injustice. Because we have to be transparent about this. The New Testament never explicitly condemns the institution of slavery. You would think the New Testament writers would launch a full frontal attack on the institution. But they don't. In fact, they give moral and ethical admonitions to masters and slaves. John Murray, writing in 1957, said these ethical admonitions would have functionally eroded the institution. More could be said about that at another time. Murray Harris, 22 years ago, uh, went through the New Testament with a fine-tooth comb, trying to track this down. How did they think about this? How did they address this? Here was his conclusion of the matter. He said, if Christianity is viewed as basically a movement of social reform, then this silence regarding slavery is indeed surprising, if not culpable. But Christianity in its essence is concerned with the transformation of character and conduct rather than with the reformation of societal structures. Its primary focus is on individual ethics within the Christian community rather than on corporate ethics within society at large. 
on interpersonal relationships rather than on social reformation through institutional change. The principal change sought is in the individual and the secondary in society through transformed individuals. The slave girl is personally, individually transformed through her conversion and it dismantles the unjust social and economic system she was caught up in. Her owners lose the ability to make money off her. In the Bible, the principal change sought is in the individual. The secondary change is in society through transformed individuals. There are countless examples of this throughout the history of the church, but if you want to read one, read John Newton's autobiography. John Newton was a former slave trader turned pastor. He talks a lot about this. Third, the third aspect, very briefly, that I find intriguing is the, this, the confrontational nature. <laughs> Not all lostness exp- responds best to soft-spokenness. Not all lostness responds best to soft-spokenness. There is a species of lostness that responds best to a passionate plea. Okay, not done in anger. Are we straight on that? You passionate, convicted people. Not done in anger, but conviction. There is a species of lostness that responds best to a passionate plea. All right, third character, the jailer. The background information we have suggests this jailer would have been retired military combat soldier. Civil service jobs like being a jailer were often given to retired military. Now, at this juncture in his life, you couldn't really say he's successful like Lydia, nor is he really a mess like the slave girl. When you think about the tactics Paul employed with Lydia and the slave girl, XGI, rational, calm discourse by the riverside, maybe not a winning strategy. Neither is the confrontational power encounter. If you got in this guy's face, you raised your voice at him like Paul did with the slave girl, he's just going to yell back at you twice as loud. Additionally, there doesn't seem to be any spiritual interest in this guy at all, at least initially. Now notice, Paul and Silas didn't initiate a gospel conversation with him. They didn't initiate. It's the jailer who came to them. Why? What piqued his interest? Well, what piqued his interest is that Paul and Silas end up showing this man the gospel before telling this man the gospel. How did they do that? A couple of ways. Keep in mind, all the prisoners had been beaten. Okay? And all Paul and Silas were beaten for was communicating a spiritual transforming message to a girl. The gospel, Jesus, right? That's what got him in trouble, beaten, okay? Put in jail, feet were fastened to stocks, probably a mild form of torture. The jailer doesn't really care. This is, this is routine for him, this is daily, daily stuff. He shows no concern for them. Probably a pretty callous guy. But how do Paul and Silas respond to him? At midnight, despite the beatings, despite the ill treatment, despite the discomfort, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. They're praising God in the midst of their suffering. Paul and Silas had a joy that was rooted in something so deep 
That when they lost their money, their freedom, their comfort, even their very lives, the joy was still there. Their joy was rooted in something so deep, you could take almost everything away from them, and their joy was still there. This had to have piqued the jailer's interest. I've not seen prisoners like this. These are different prisoners. The second way they showed this man the gospel is through their response to him when he's about to fall on his sword. The penalty for losing a prisoner was death. Every ex-GI knew that. So the honorable thing to do, fall on your sword. But Paul and Silas respond very differently. They delay their escape. Now remember, they've been imprisoned unjustly. They have every right to leave once the doors come open, the shackles fall off. They got every right to leave. Unjust imprisonment. Time to go. They delay it. They delay it. They had every right to walk out, but they delay it. They could have taken off, but only at the price of the jailer's life. (laughs) They repaid evil with good. They lived out the gospel. This is what Jesus has done with us. Jesus repaid our evil committed against him with good by dying in our place to forgive and save This gave this jailer an experience of a very different story than the one he's lived inside his whole life. Paul and Silas are giving this guy a glimpse into a very different world. One in which evil is repaid with good. And the man sees this. And I wonder if at that point he looked at them and said, they have something I don't have. So Lydia gets a rational discourse. The slave girl gets a confrontational verbal power encounter. This man gets a story in which people handle abuse and suffering in a radically different way than he's ever seen before. Let me give you an example of that. William Willimon's pastor, and he tells a story from something that occurred early in his ministry. He says this, early in my ministry, I arrived at a hospital room where a woman in my church had just given birth. I had been told that there were problems with the birth. The couple waited patiently for the doctor to visit with them and explain what was happening. The doctor came shortly after I had arrived. He sat down and explained to the parents, you have a new baby boy, but there are some problems. Your child has been born with Down syndrome, and your child has a rather minor and correctable respiratory condition. My recommendation is for you to let nature take its course, and in a few days, there shouldn't be a problem. The couple seemed confused by what the doctor had told them. If the condition is easily corrected, then we want it corrected, said the husband, and his wife immediately nodded in agreement. You must understand that studies show that parents who keep these children have a high incidence of marital distress. And is it fair of you to bring this sort of suffering upon your other two children, said the doctor. At the mention of the word suffering, it was as if the doctor had finally begun speaking the woman's language. And she said, our children have had every advantage in the world. They have never really known suffering. They've never had the opportunity to know it. I don't know if God's hand is in this or in what way it's in this, but I could certainly see why it would make perfect sense for a child like this to be born into a family like ours. Our children will do just fine. As a matter of fact, the more I think about it, it's a great opportunity for us. The doctor looked 
absolutely perplexed. He abruptly departed, and so I followed him out into the hall, and he turned to me and said, Reverend, I hope you can talk some reason into them. Willimon finishes this way. The couple was using reason, but it was a reasoning that was foreign to the doctor. For me, it was a vivid depiction of the way in which the church, at its best, is in the business of teaching a different language from that of the world. The church, through the story of Jesus, teaches a different language whereby words like suffering, words that are irredeemably negative in our society, change their very substance. See, here was a couple who had listened to the ultimate story, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus for them, in which suffering could be reasonably redemptive. This is what the jailer saw and didn't understand. But as he watched it unfold before his eyes, he said, I want that story in my life. I want to be able to handle abuse and suffering like that. They showed him a different story and then told him a different story. Now, what do we learn from these three case studies? Very quickly in closing. What do we learn from these case studies? Number one, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for religious types. The gospel is for irreligious types. The gospel is for all cultures. It's for all socioeconomic classes. The gospel is for all walks of life. If you're listening to my voice and thinking, I'm not the type of person to consider the gospel, with all due respect, you're not allowed to get out from underneath it without weighing it thoroughly. The gospel is for all types. It's for everyone. F.F. Bruce, observing this, says, Three individuals are singled out by Luke among those whose lives were influenced for good by the gospel at Philippi. They differ so much from one another that he might be thought to have selected them deliberately in order to show how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women. It's for everyone. Second, there is no greater unifying factor than the gospel. Think about this. The wealthy businesswoman, the teenage former drug addict prostitute, and the former military officer would have all been part of the same church. Wrap your head around that. What ultimately binds Christians together is not the number on their W-2 or their age or their skin color or their vocation. What ultimately binds Christians together is having been changed by the gospel to have a radical reorientation of their lives around Jesus. What we should see in a church are a group of people who wouldn't seek each other out if it weren't for their shared love for Christ. We should see people together who don't have anything in common other than Christ. Look, I can tell you that's true for me and this church because some of you, quite frankly, are the strangest people I've ever met. (laughs) Yes, I know. To some of you, I'm the strangest person you've ever met. I get it. Third, the gospel can't be canned. The gospel can't be canned. Paul's approach with these three people is as varied as the way the Vikings find ways to lose football games. (laughs) One day it's this. The next day it's that. The next day it's something completely different. 
The gospel can't be canned. There isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to seeing people become followers of Jesus Christ. You got that? There's no one-size-fits-all approach. With Lydia, it's a quiet, rational conversation over a cup of coffee at a cafe. With the slave girl, it's an assertive, confrontational, verbal command. With the jailer, it's watching Christians handle abuse and suffering before there's openness to hearing what they have to say. The gospel simply can't be canned. The gospel's for everyone. There is no greater unifying factor than the gospel. And the gospel can't be canned. It is through these diverse ways, creative ways, we can be assured of Jesus' words to us. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we, as I look at these three stories, I'm flabbergasted at the, the variety of ways in which you bring people to yourself, in which you change them. It's astonishing. You will bring the lost to yourself, and there are few measures you won't take in order to make that happen. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by that. You are at work. You are at work in remarkable ways, in ways we don't understand, in ways we don't see. Lord, I pray that as a community of Jesus' followers, that you would give us wisdom and spiritual sight to see how it is you're wanting to use us in the lives of those like the ones we read about today. Where do you want us to be? What do you want us to say? How do you want us to respond to life? God, make us aware. Make us aware. And Lord, we hang on this promise. Your son told us, you will build your church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. God, you are advancing your kingdom. And we find great joy and confidence in that. We praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.